Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance in the Crawl Space Studios in Wormtown. Lance, how are you today? I am doing really well. Better than ever. How are you today, Tim? I'm doing well as well, Lance. And we had an old friend into the Crawl Space Studios this week. And it's it's Bill Thomas, Papa Bill. Yeah, that's the new nickname for him, uh, Papa Bill. And uh, yeah, I don't know how many times he's been on. I've kind of lost count, but he uh, he is a friend of the show. He is a advocate uh, for the Colonial Parkway murders case. He wants that case solved because, as everyone probably knows, his sister Kathleen Thomas and her girlfriend Rebecca Andowski uh, were murdered on October twelfth, nineteen eighty six, Columbus Day weekend. Uh, by the uh, Colonial Parkway murderer, the serial killer, and they were the first two victims. And uh, his sister was 27, and Rebecca Andowski was 21. And since then, he's made it his life mission to not only bring closure to that case, but it's opened up his repertoire to other cases as well. That's right. And Bill Thomas was in the Crawl Space Studios twice before. We did two two-parters with him. One was called Killer on the Parkway that aired in May of 2019. It's on this feed, and I think it's on Missing More, Murray's feed as well. And then we had another two-parter with him in October called Colonial Parkway Murder Discussion. And I do recommend you go back and listen to those. Um, we do talk a little bit about the Colonial Parkway murder case in this episode, but we don't focus completely on it um, because Bill has a new podcast to announce, a new podcast under the Crawl Space Media Network umbrella. That's right. Bill is going to be focusing on other murders, other unsolved cases in that geographic area. And the podcast is called Mind Over Murder. And it's him with his co-host, Kristen Dilley, who does a lot of the research. And Bill is sort of the, uh, appropriately enough, the, the color commentator. That's right. And you can follow Bill and Mind Over Murder on Twitter. Bill is at at BillThomas56. And Mind Over Murder is at MurderOver on Twitter. It's under the umbrella. We're welcoming Bill and Kristen with open arms um, into the Crawl Space Media Network family. So click the link in the show notes. Go subscribe to Bill's show. And subscribe to all the other shows that we have on our network. They're great shows, quality uh, listening experiences all around crawlspace-media.com. And part of what Bill covers in his first episode that aired just this week is the unsolved double murder of Heidi Childs and David Metzler. Yeah, crazy case, tragic case. I'd kind of heard about it um, sort of peripherally. I, I hadn't really looked too much into it until we started talking with Bill about it. And he's got a lot of information. Him and uh, Kristen have done a lot of research on this. It happened in Montgomery County in Virginia on August 26, 2009. David Metzler was only 19 and Heidi Childs was only 18. And they were gunned down in their car just outside uh, Jefferson National Forest. Yeah, tragic case. So Bill talks about that on his first episode. So subscribe to his show, and we hope you enjoy this episode. One more thing we want to mention before letting you go, though. What's that? Private Investigations for the Missing Lance. Of course, that's the nonprofit that we are on the board of. They are doing a raffle. Fun. What are they raffling off? Old friend Deborah Halbert, who was on the show a while ago, she wrote the Skeleton Crew book. And we are raffling off an autographed signed copy of Deborah Halbert's masterpiece, The Skeleton Crew. Yes, The Skeleton Crew is about 
citizen detectives taking their uh, taking their passion for cold cases to the next level and what can be done in that sort of culture. And Deborah was actually the connector between us and Todd Matthews. That's right. Our good friend Todd Matthews of NamUs. So check it out. Go to investigationsforthemissing.org and you can link to all the social pages from that site or they're in the show notes. So thanks a lot for listening, everybody. Welcome to the Crawl Space Studios, Bill Thomas. How are you today, Bill? I'm great. Am I on the air? We are on the air, live. live. Hot this microphone. Is, this is like live radio. Yeah. Yep. And you, uh, you traveled here. Uh, you, you drove halfway, and then you hopped on the worm for the rest of the trip. When you say the worm, what exactly is the worm? Oh, what's the... I can't believe we're... Is this a free... Uh, transportation system the, the worm the worm, worm of, of wormtown yeah oh gosh yeah, the the the, <laughs> the mascot of wormtown the representative and keeper of the city oh i know what happened he was sworn to secrecy oh that happens yeah yeah the yeah. the worm the worm doesn't want everyone talking about him the worm typically has you sign ndas why am i picturing something extremely large and and uh white crawling out of something that looks like the loch ness you basically got you it nailed it you, yeah so yeah. that's yeah. that's uh, that's how proof. that's how the worm wanted you to see him proof that you took the worm here yeah. so and i signed an nda which i'm always so fond of <laughs> which is a great segue yeah speaking of uh nda for you young people that stands for non-disclosure agreement that's right, and you had. To I thought it was like an LOL thing. <laughs> and you likely had to sign one recently um, because of a TV show. Yes, I did, and that's all I can say. <laughs> okay, but so, there is a TV show that's being produced about the Colonial Parkway murders. Okay, and that's great. all. I, that's all I can say. Okay, okay. and uh, I wasn't here today. <laughs> who, I, don't I, even, don't, I don't even. I don't know who we're talking to. Never, ah. never seen him. Yep. <laughs> we're talking to Schmill. Shmamis. So, uh, so Bill, our listeners, uh, I would expect them to be a bit familiar with you. You've been on these airwaves several times before, um, and you've I've shown terrible judgment, and here I am <laughs> back for more. Well, that's uh, typical with yeah. our guests. Yeah, and um, so tell us a little bit about uh, why you've come here in the first place. Well, you invited me, and uh, there was lunch involved. I like how you said invited and not bribed. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and so I came. And we had new things to talk about. Yes. We, we always have new things to talk about with you. Uh, we originally wanted to have you come on and talk about another case that we're working on, another podcast. But it always just kind of develops into something, something else and, and something more important and uh, relevant to these times. Well, and you guys are into so many different things. I, I actually find it fascinating. It's a, just a matter of, I think, for the two of you, and there's only two of them, ladies and gentlemen, uh, <laughs> prioritizing all the cool stuff you're into. Well, sometimes it feels like a, uh insane horse running <laughs> towards a burning stable, but... <laughs> <laughs> So, Bill, the uh, the Colonial Parkway murders is something that's very close to your heart, obviously. Uh, your sister was a victim. Correct. And so this is a case that you followed very closely and have followed uh, for years, obviously. 33 years, but who's counting? Should we do a brief recap? I, I think so, yeah. Uh, yeah, and I think if anybody wants to get more in-depth into that, we have the other episodes. I would say sure. definitely go back and check out those because we're just going to do a little update here and then we're going to move on to a different uh, topic today. Absolutely. And 
somehow you guys have have talked me into joining the Crawl Space Media family. I like how you said joining and not bribed. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's twice you've mentioned bribes. <laughs> welcome aboard. Well, that's how we got every other show um, on the Crawl Space Network. Just grease those palms. Yeah. Well, you know, you gave me swag last time I was here, <laughs> and we're still using our Crawl Space pens. Um, to good use, I, I'd like to think. Yes. Well, welcome aboard the SS Crawl Space. We, uh, we're happy to have you. Well, thank you. I'm excited to be here. What are you bringing? And yeah, your show, Mind Over Murder, yes. is a great title, great thank logo. So you. I like where you're starting right off the bat. Yes. Um, so uh, Kristen Dilley, who is uh, my partner in crime and now partner in podcasting, which is fun to say. Yes. Partner in podcasting. Try not to pop your peas, I'm learning. <laughs> Uh, about podcasting from you professionals. Uh, there's another P word. Um, so we're launching a new true crime podcast because we're concerned there aren't enough already. That is true. Uh, <laughs> and then as, market. As, yeah. as your friends and competitors have noted, um, the Crawl Space Media Empire juggernaut. I juggernaut think the was the word. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. Crawl Space Media juggernaut continues and you're adding... Yet another podcast to the true crime space. We're like the universe, and we're kind of always ever expanding. It's a series of small and large gaseous explosions. <laughs> gaseous explosions. There you go. Inside the crawl space studios. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. So, Bill, Good visual. Before we uh, we talk about what you're covering in uh, season one of Mind Over Murder, let's uh, let's hear a little bit about the Colonial Parkway um, and. Uh, and let's get a little bit of an update on what's been going on, because I noticed you on social media talking about this court case that had happened um, with this uh, very suspicious person, I would say, not necessarily connected to the Colonial Parkway murders, but in the same area and on, in very suspicious activity. Sure. Well, I think we can talk about this. I mean, this has been in the media and it's a matter of public record. And we're not saying and bringing this guy's name uh, we're not saying he's directly involved in the Colonial Parkway murders, but last June, uh, June 2019, uh, a man named Timothy Irvin, E-R-V-I-N, Trivet, T-R-I-V-E-T-T, was arrested by Maryland State Police on the Beltway, I guess you'd call it, um, outside Baltimore. And Mr. Trivet was dressed like a police officer and driving a black and white Chevy like a police officer would drive, um, with a gun belt and a, a stun gun and all of the equipment that you would anticipate a police officer wearing. And Mr. Tribbett had pulled over someone driving a Honda on the highway. So he was conducting a traffic stop. But this guy wasn't a cop. And a real Maryland state trooper passing by this traffic stop on the other side of the highway, as I understand it, from talking to law enforcement and reading in, in newspaper accounts and so on, he uh, swung back around and the Maryland State Trooper pulled in behind Mr. Trivet, who is conducting a traffic stop as if he's a legitimate police officer. So this real Maryland State Trooper shows up and starts asking questions and talk about great timing. And you got to give the law enforcement officer a lot of yeah. credit for noticing this and thinking, I got to check this out. Yeah, He pulled up. And started asking Mr. Trivet questions, and Trivet has pulled over someone as if he's a police officer. So ultimately, the Maryland State Trooper figures out that this fake cop is a fake cop, and 
puts him under arrest after asking all of the appropriate questions. The reason why this moved on to our radar, that is the families from the Colonial Parkway murders, is Trivet is up near Baltimore at the time of his arrest this past June, but he's from Newport News, Virginia, which is down, you know, several hours south, got to be, you know, three, four hours south of there, right next to the Colonial Parkway murders. Yeah. And Trivet is in his late 50s, old enough to have been at least potentially involved in the Colonial Parkway murders. So Newport News is right next to the Colonial Parkway. Right. So he's uh, sorry. He was 54 at the time of his arrest. So and 33 years ago would put him around 20, 21 at the time. Yeah. So he's he's old enough. The yeah. first victims, your sister, Kathleen and Rebecca Dowski, Dowski, um, they were the first victims. That was October of 86. Correct. So that would put him in his in early, early 20s. 20s. Yeah. He's old enough to have been involved. And one of the uh, themes in the Colonial Parkway murders, which are 1986 to 1989, these four couples uh, murdered two on the Colonial Parkway and two off the Colonial Parkway. But there's always been a theory right from the beginning that it was possible that a law enforcement officer or a an imposter could be involved mm-hmm. in the, the these four double homicides. These yeah. are all couples in cars in kind of lover's lane situations and there's a sense with wallets out and windows halfway down in several examples that a law enforcement officer or someone presenting as such could have been involved in the colonial parkway murders yeah i think that makes a lot of sense well, especially when you see that this happens, people impersonating officers. Yeah. This guy had a blue and white uh, light. This guy a, was driving around yeah. with lights to pull someone over hours away from where he lives. What the hell was he going to do? Yeah, and he's not well, driving like a uh, uh, like a Prius. He's, he's driving, driving a, a Chevy Impala. Right. He's driving an Impala, which looks like a police car anyway. And is outfitted like a police car. Yeah. I talked to the law enforcement officers again the other day. He's got lights up under the... A grill, like uh, you know, a uh, some types of, of. So he wants to appear like his car is. This a, was this was got, thought out. He's yeah. got a he's got dash cams set up. He has the black and white Chevy Impala, as you mentioned, and he had a gun, and Did... he had a gun and a stun gun, and all of the equipment that an an officer would normally use. Now, just by chance, I was just down in Virginia recording new episodes of this Mind Over Murder podcast. I got pulled over by a Maryland state trooper the other day. Thankfully, I didn't get a ticket, and I'd like to thank that officer. Um, <laughs> he obviously didn't know about well, uh, yeah. what you say on these podcasts. <laughs> no, he didn't. He uh, wasn't listening to Crawl Space I, before he pulled I, you over? I had the radio down and was singing God Bless America by the time he <laughs> arrived on scene. <laughs> he would have recognized your voice if he had heard Crawl Space. So, right. Yeah. But, uh, and I was on the phone with my brother, and I was like, uh, Richard, got to go. <laughs> uh, traffic backed up. Very quickly in front of me, I just crossed over from Virginia to Maryland, and um, I made a rather abrupt lane change, mm. and this officer made note of that <laughs> and pulled me over. They'll get you a, for anything nowadays. This was a couple of days a- after Christmas, so I think the spirit moved him, <laughs> and I apologized profusely, <laughs> and well, that was I nice. got away with a written warning, and yeah. I very much appreciate it. But and you're I, sure he was a real police officer? Well, it's funny. That's why I bring this up. Yeah. I was talking to the real police officers who were investigating this man, uh, Timothy Irvin Trivet, 
the other day, and I told him this story. Yeah. Um, with with the God Bless America thing, the whole nine yards, <laughs> and he appreciated it. And one of the things I said was, you know, I assumed this was daytime, by the way. Um, I assumed when that police officer pulled me over that he was a legitimate Maryland state trooper. I mean, he was driving a black and white, and he was dressed like a law enforcement officer. And, you know, those of us that have been pulled over, I know you guys have never. This has never, never happened to you. Never once. Nope. You know, the the officers, for their own safety, kind of stay back a little bit out of your uh, line of sight. You know, they stand kind of behind the door, so you have to look over your left mm. shoulder to kind of get a look at them. You're not really able to study them particularly. So there's an assumption for all of us. Yeah. That when someone pulls you over like that, driving a vehicle like that, that they're a legitimate cop. Now, this yeah, guy there's a was. lot of anxiety that a driver has sure. when they're pulled over, so you almost don't want to look at them. Yeah, you're sitting there saying, oh, gosh, I hope I don't get a ticket, you know, that kind of thing. And they, um, you know, there's a routine that I, I think those of us that have been pulled over once or twice, and me, it's, you know, just once or twice or ten times, Um Mr. Heavyfoot, um, <laughs> there's an assumption that this person pulling you over is is a real cop and that they're going to treat you appropriately and, and and so on. And, you know, the whole encounter went fine and lasted probably less than 10 minutes. And the guy, you know, obviously ran my plate and I've got Connecticut yeah. plates on my Stolen. car and a Cali- California driver's license. <laughs> oh, there <laughs> you know, you there's a mismatch yeah. right there. Yeah. And. You know, it all went fine. Yeah. And, you know, we've all seen plenty of examples where traffic incidents on social media, et cetera, don't go well. But my point is this. That all worked out fine, and that police officer and I had a good interaction, and I thanked him at the end, and I went on my way with my written warning, and I promised not to change lanes quite so abruptly the next time I'm in Maryland. But how was I to know that was a real cop? And this guy, Trivet, as it turns out, not only is he a police impersonator, and he got caught by a real Maryland state trooper, he lived in the Colonial Parkway area at, you know, I did some research, as we all do, and, you know, found in his address history, he lived three miles off the Colonial Parkway during the era of the Colonial Parkway murders. So I approached the Maryland state police, the Virginia state police, and the FBI um, last June to give them a heads up that this guy had been arrested uh, for impersonating an officer and he was from the Colonial Parkway murders area and as we talked about, it's the right era, he's the right age and I don't think this guy started impersonating police officers at age 54. Yeah, I doubt that was the first time he did that. Uh, I mean, he outfitted his car for such a purpose. I mean, those thought put into this. Yeah, very well prepared. Uh, So obviously he's um, been thrown in the slammer and they threw away the key and he'll never be on the streets to do it again. No, you're wrong, Tim. What? Not exactly. Come on. This this part is disturbing. Um, It all is, Apparently it's a misdemeanor to impersonate an officer in Maryland. And by the way, I haven't done research on the other 49 states, but I my guess is this is not uncommon. So this guy actually, despite the fact that he pulled over these people under false pretenses and was armed, and as I said, they, they assumed he was a real cop, he, had, he has no priors, so he was in court just the other day, 
and he walked. This is insane. He it's probation only. He has he'll be on I'm, probation. I'm not for always five saying years. like you know throw away the key on people, but I, isn't there something in existence that's uh, if you have multiple misdemeanors in one particular charge? I mean, I know that's not the case. They don't like add all the misdemeanors and now say it's a felony. But I mean, it, it, it it's also a misdemeanor to carry the weapon with the ammunition in it without it being in a container away from you in the car, that's also a misdemeanor. You can have a, a weapon in your car, and if you get caught, it's a misdemeanor. And then he's he's impersonating a cop. Like, what I'm saying is, why aren't those two misdemeanors that directly related? Yeah, what was he planning on doing? <laughs> why, like, like exactly. why isn't there more thought put into this? Exactly. So, uh, you know, I, I, a couple of things that I want to make note of. Uh, I'm as equally disturbed a- as you are, and I think that this is something that, all of us should be thinking about. Um, I think it's outrageous that it's a misdemeanor, and I think it's outrageous that this guy's out yeah. and back, you know, out out in the public. Uh, and I did speak to the investigating officers. Now, at this point, I was talking to um, terrific detective from uh, Baltimore County, and I. I want to give credit where credit is due. I had spoken to a reporter from the Baltimore Sun last June when this had happened because I wanted to give a heads up to some of the local media that they should be looking into this guy's background because of the at least potential connection to uh, the Colonial Parkway murders and a series of police impersonation um, attempts that were made in and around the Colonial Parkway back in the 80s. And I ended up speaking to a terrific reporter named Tim Prudente. And Tim's a reporter for the Baltimore Sun, and he covers the crime beat. Real nice guy. Talked to him and talked to his editor. And he said, let me do some digging on this. So spoke to Tim a couple of times, and then flash forward six months to the hearing. So this is a very routine day in court, as I understand it, district court, and Tim Prudente is the only reporter in the room. It's, you know, law enforcement folks, attorneys, the judge, you know, the whole bit. Prudente, after having talked to me, he said, you know, I'm going to ask Mr. Trivet if he has any comment about any potential involvement in the Colonial Parkway murders, seeing as how he does fit the criteria. And so God love newspapers, and Tim Prudente. So Tim starts asking questions of this guy, and then other people made note of this. And so Tim Prudente, even though I hadn't asked him to do this, he started asking questions of the suspect, and then other people made note of that, and then he ended up talking to the prosecutor and some of the investigating police officers who then reached out to me to find out more about this. Now, one of the things I find with when you're talking about a case like ours, which is 33 years old, when I called people last June in Maryland, Virginia, especially, I'm talking to folks about the Colonial Parkway murders. I'm talking about police officers now. They have no idea what I'm talking about. And I'm not not expecting them to remember, but it's sort of scary that the institutional memory is being provided by the families and not by law enforcement. When I talk to the FBI, now I'm in touch with them regularly because my sister Kathy's case is an FBI case. It happened in a national park. They obviously know about our case yeah. backwards and forwards. But when I reached out to the Maryland and Virginia State Police, 
They had no idea what I was talking about. And they and I had said to them, you might want to check with your colleagues about a case called the Colonial Parkway Murders. And this guy, Trivet, fits the bill in terms of the kind of person you have told us, the families and the media, that you're looking for. But it's funny, we're we the families are kind of providing the connector to put all of this stuff together. And thanks to Tim Prudenti at the Baltimore Sun, he started asking questions. People made note of that. And the next thing I know, I'm hearing from the investigating officer from Baltimore County. And then I heard from the prosecutor as well, asking me questions about Trivet. And so I actually sent them background reports that, that I had run. And I, I always think this stuff seems a little backwards that it's the family of the murder victim researching this stuff and passing it on to law enforcement. It seems like it, the roles ought to be reversed. Yeah. So um, this Trivet character, is he uh, out of, uh, he's not in jail. He's, he's on parole right now or he's on? Yeah, he's on parole and he's got a lengthy parole of five years and he made a claim in court and, you know, I rolled my eyes and maybe I'm wrong here and if I am, I'll apologize in advance. He claimed that his wife is dying and that he is now obligated to be caring for her full time. Now, he's supposed to be living up near Baltimore, but his wife lives down in Newport News. And this is, you know, three or four hours apart. Um, So he was living up in Baltimore? Well, uh, according to the officers uh, who've been great, um, he is living up north of Baltimore. Oh. And what more do you know about his private, his personal life? So he's married. His wife is dying, allegedly. Well, he, and I, and, you know, I hope I'm wrong about this. And, and he grew up in it, Newport it, News? It, well, it appears he's lived a good portion of his life in a number of localities in the so-called Tidewater area of Virginia. That's the, um, that Norfolk to Williamsburg uh, Hampton Roads, Newport News area. He's lived a number of places uh, in that area. I think he's married. I think he has a couple of kids. Interestingly, he changed his name, it appears, at one point. I don't know what that's about, whether that's a an adoption thing. I mean, obviously, legally, you can change your name. Sure. When did he do that? Some years back. But he, he appear, his history appears under, under two different last names. Again, there are lots of legitimate reasons that yeah. people might might change their name. What about DNA? Do you know if they got DNA recently from him? Uh, no, they haven't because this is a misdemeanor. Right, okay. Well, that's disappointing. Did they ask him, do you know? Or you probably uh, no, I don't think they went down that road. Yeah. But I, you know, uh, the officers that I've spoken to um, are clearly not going to let this go. Well, I suppose they don't need his permission to get his DNA uh, from the trash or something like that. Well, but remember, you've got to have, you've got to have some Probable way of cause. collecting it and, you, you know, I'm not an attorney, and, yeah. and nor do I play one on TV. But I, I think they'd have to go through the you know the appropriate steps in, in order to collect his DNA. I, yeah, we hear different things about that. We hear things like if it's thrown out, like there's no no uh, reason for you know someone to think that a coffee cup didn't fall out of the trash and was picked up by a happened to be picked up by a police officer, and you know. I, I mean, well, discarded DNA, as they call it. I mean, that's how they caught the Golden State Killer yeah. in a number of these cases. There's, I, we're closing in, I think, on 100 cases now that have been broken in the last year and a half since the Golden State Killer case was broken. So, you know, uh, if you throw out that coffee cup, um, 
your trash is trash. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you're being followed by law enforcement officers, they could collect uh, that cup and compare that against uh, DNA. And you have discarded that evidence by hopefully not throwing it out of your window. But Yeah, uh, no littering. But But they may have had to have gotten it through an official resource, even if they had tested it and matched it before. They may have to get it officially. I'd love for these officers, and you know that's the commitment that they've made. They agree with my point that they don't think this guy started this behavior last year. Yeah, they think he's been involved in other cases before, and they are um, going to be, you know, continuing their investigation. And uh, one of the things they talked about was uh, I was learning some new lingo the other day: a bolo, a be on the lookout mm-hmm. for notice would Mm -hmm. go out to Maryland and surrounding areas inquiring of law enforcement officers. Have you had any similar um, situations where someone like this may have pulled over uh, individuals? And so they're looking to see if there's a larger pattern here. And I'd be very surprised to find out uh, that this is his only uh, incident of this type. Do they have any records uh, in regards to when he purchased these things, like the the body armor that he was wearing or the gun or any of the radio equipment or the lights. I think his car was a 2012, so who knows? Back in 2012, maybe he was thinking he was going to start doing this and he intentionally purchased a, a, a car that looked like a police officer's car. I don't know how much research they've done. I do know uh, from the officers and the reporter that they confiscated a lot of this equipment from him, this police equipment. Good. So I think they'll be looking into, you know, some of that uh, stuff to see where he got this equipment and, uh, uh, you know, you know when this kind of behavior yeah. began. He's working as a security guard and, uh, you know, up in the Baltimore area at like a mall. He's, you know, Paul Blart mall cop. Uh, and again, I'm not making fun of somebody who's a security guard. Or Paul Blart. It, no, it was a fine actor. <laughs> <laughs> or character, as the case may be. That's not, that wasn't a documentary? <laughs> I think part two was. I yeah, think, part two was a documentary. <laughs> I think Lance is convinced it was a docu-drama. <laughs> <laughs> Who plays the part? Isn't that Kevin Paul? James? Kevin James? Yeah. The what? talented Kevin James? <laughs> yeah, shot at the Burlington Mall. Burlington, Massachusetts. Oh, yeah. Burlington wow, Mall. tax incentives at work right here in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. <laughs> I didn't know it was shot at the Burlington Mall. Yeah. I've been there many times as a a younger man. Yeah, me too. Um, All right, Bill. So so I imagine you're doing a deep dive on this trivet on Mind Over Murder first episode? You know, it hadn't occurred to us (laughs) until just now. I just made a note. (laughs) That's why you're on the Crawl Space Network. (laughs) No, we're actually trying to cover other cases first. Okay. Oh, okay. That's great. Um, Other cases in the area? Well, uh, Kristen Dilley, my... My partner in podcasting. Oh, good. I want to ask out Kristen. Yeah, shout out Kristen Dilly. Uh, can you give a, a brief little uh, sure. synopsis on her and her background? Uh, Kristen Dilly and I have known each other for about five years. She's a wonderful writer, researcher, and teacher in Williamsburg. She was working on a book about five years ago called Battle Scars, which she's still working on. Uh, she had lost a friend to violent crime and was working on a book about surviving loss and how people move on with their lives after losing a loved one to violent crime and and so on. And she reached out to me and introduced herself. She cold called me and um, 
she asked me if she might interview me about uh, my sister Kathy's death and the Colonial Parkway murders. And as we've talked about before, I usually try to say yes to folks like that. So she ended up interviewing me for the book, which she's still working on. And um, I really liked her. She was really smart, and she asked great questions, and she was very thoughtful. And so we kind of hit it off, and she said, you know, if there's anything I could do to help you with the Colonial Parkway murders, uh, please let me know. I'm very interested in the case. She had grown up in Williamsburg. She'd gone away to uh, undergrad and grad school uh, and had worked in Arizona for several years as in her work as a teacher, but she had returned to the area and so she had grown up at an, in a time frame when young people were told don't pull over on the Colonial Parkway for anyone, you know, drive to a well-lit place before you pull over. doesn't matter if it's a couple of miles. The parkway can be very lonesome. So she remembered the case and she remembered a lot of the particulars. And what we found then is that I personally found her to be a terrific a friend and a valuable asset because I was living on the West Coast at the time. I've never lived in Virginia. And here I had someone who had offered her assistance. She had grown up in the area. She knew the the roads and backwoods and, and the kind of the town uh, and surrounding areas really well. And she was in Virgi- back in Virginia living. So I had kind of um, a single pair of boots, but boots on the ground, in in Williamsburg. And so she and I had, had uh, sort of developed a great relationship, and she ended up um, assisting us with social media. She's a computer whiz in addition to being a fine writer. And so she and I co-administrate the Colonial Parkway Murders Facebook page. And how do you find that page? Um, you go to uh, Facebook, Colonial Parkway Murders, and there we are. Okay, we'll pop a link in the show notes as well, so you'll want to uh, like that page. Well, thank you. Yeah, we're up to, just about to cross over 10,000 followers, which is really nice. Let's make it 100,000, folks. (laughs) Well, thank you. And so she had pitched me, Kristen had pitched me, got to be two years ago, and my uh, life partner, Pamela Arnois, had also said, you should do a podcast. You know, you're doing podcasts with all these guys like, you know, Lance and Tim and all these other that should end right there. Nationally, <laughs> nationally known figures, <laughs> uh, pioneers in podcasting, and um, you know, you guys have been very I- I- encouraging. Uh, that's E N encouraging. <laughs> Good. Um, and uh, Kristen said, you know, you should do a podcast. And so I said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll do a podcast, Kristen, if you'll do a podcast. <laughs> so we thought, let's do a podcast with the two of us. And I think it's interesting too. Um, to have uh, that, you know, that contrast, you know, Kristen's younger than I am. She grew up in the area. I've never lived in Virginia. Mm -hmm. Um, My connection to Virginia is that my older brother, Richard, and my younger sister, Kathy, both were stationed in the Norfolk area originally due to their service in the United States Navy, but I've never lived there. And Mm -hmm. so it's helpful to have Kristen's perspective as a local person, as a woman, she's significantly younger than I am. Um, I've now moved back to the East Coast up here to Connecticut, but um, I think we bring each bring our, our own kind of unique perspective um, to the podcast, and I, we're really enjoying it. Um, we're still kind of working out all the logistics, you know, the 
dueling egos as I see with the two of you. And uh, it never ends. <laughs> I, I mean, I would just say ego because it's just Lance you're talking about. <laughs> and well, I'm dueling with myself. Yeah, <laughs> let's settle that score right now. Yeah. No, we're, we're really enjoying it. We're not claiming to be professional podcasters like yourselves, but we're going to Whenever try to learn. We're going to try to learn from the best. We'll, we'll get uh, Bill Billy Jensen on the phone. <laughs> well, welcome aboard the Crawl Space Media Network. Uh, we've got some great shows here, and we will introduce you to all of them and the fine creators who run those shows. And we are happy to have you aboard, Bill. Welcome, Kristen and Bill. Well, thank you. And it's funny, we'll get Kristen here, too. Perfect. And you'll be able to meet her. She's oh, much more interesting Con. and attractive than I yeah. am. We had burgers at CrimeCon. Well, that is true. But yep. I mean, I mean, over the air, you know, yes. with a microphone. Yes. Um, um, okay, so tell us about this case that you guys are looking into in uh, some of your first episodes. Sure. We are not going to start with the Colonial Parkway murders. We made a decision to push that back a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to try to lay the groundwork with some other unsolved cases um, in in Virginia to start. Um, and so we just sort of, you know, ballparked a bunch of ideas and decided to start with an unsolved case um, from 2009, and that's uh, the case involving Heidi Childs and David Metzler. And this these are two college-age folks. Uh, Heidi was 18, and uh, her longtime boyfriend, David, was 19, they're high school sweethearts from Lynchburg, Virginia, and they were attending Virginia Tech in Blacksburg, Virginia in 2009 when they were found shot to death. Now, keeping in mind the Colonial Parkway murders happened in 86 to 89, so uh, Heidi and David are 20 years later, but there were certain elements of their murder um, that reminded people of the Colonial Parkway murder, so we found that Heidi and David's um, case came up a lot and and was referenced um, in possible connection to the Colonial Parkway murders. We're not implying that there's any kind of connection, but um, we thought that was a good case to start with. Yeah. So we did episode one where we talk about the basics of the case, and uh, Kristen kind of presents uh, an overview of uh, the Black, Blacksburg area and Virginia Tech um, and a little bit about the case. And then in episode two, we brought in Lisa Lucas Gardner, who was a former Blacksburg, Virginia police officer turned lawyer. And she has been a big advocate for uh, Heidi and David's murder, which is sometimes referred to as the Caldwell Fields murder because it happened at this very pretty uh area about 20 minutes outside of Blacksburg called Caldwell Fields. Caldwell Fields Recreation Area. And so they were in a car in the parking lot? They were in a car in the parking lot. They were on a, a on an early date. They were uh, they went out there to play guitars. They're both pretty accomplished musicians and um, they were supposed to have some sort of special date and discussion. We think it's that uh, Heidi had made a decision to switch over to pre-med and uh, was going to begin planning to become a doctor and these are both really super high achieving young people in challenging academic programs as a matter of fact one of the things that made me smile is that these two are out for a date that evening but David had to get back early because he had more schoolwork to do and they were you know both you know very accomplished hard-working student types and 
it appears that someone uh, interrupted them and they, they're found the next morning shot to death with a hunting rifle, a thirty odd six at close range. David was found shot to death in his Toyota and Heidi a short distance away. It appears that she may have jumped out of the car in an attempt to get away and then she was shot and so they're both found murdered in this bucolic spot uh, and these are these are two young people um that don't appear to have an enemy in the world so this appears to be perhaps wrong place wrong time we you know all the work that the investigators have done they're completely baffled here it is now 10 years later and they still haven't figured out what happened to this this young couple any signs of robbery well, there were items that were taken from Heidi. Um, her, I remember they, they, they made a very strange decision from my perspective. Three years after the murders in 2012, they came forward with a list of items that were taken from Heidi, including her, uh, her cell phone, her digital camera, her ID from Virginia Tech, and so on. And this was one of the things that's baffled me about this case. Law enforcement presented those things at a press conference in 2012, asking the public if they had seen these things. I think that would have been much more helpful to have done this in late August, early September 2009, just after the killings had taken place, not waiting three years. Yeah, I guess uh, the purpose to wait might be in case they uh, find somebody with these things and or if someone comes forward and and says they have them, I mean, I don't. Yeah, I don't know what the uh, pros and cons of that would be. Law enforcement has talked to me about this before. They have what they call holdbacks, as you yeah, guys okay. know, things that only the killer or a witness would know about a particular crime scene. I, I totally get that they want to yeah. hold back details, right? Like, so for example, they they don't release how many times the victims were shot, but they did release that. Heidi's purse was taken with her phone inside it, um, her ca- a camera, a credit card, an ID, and a Virginia Tech lanyard. So you would still you would be able to prove that you were the killer if you had those things, right? Uh, but I I just think sometimes, and you know I'm going to say this as the brother of a murder victim, I think law enforcement often has an inherent distrust of the public, and I think yeah, they're making yeah. a mistake. Yeah. In other words, I think it was important to put out that be on the lookout for these items. Yeah. But three years later, it's not anywhere near as helpful as it would have been in early fall 2009 to say be on the lookout for these items now, not three years ago. Yeah, hard to argue that. And they put out the information that it was a, a thirty out 6 They did. Uh, but uh, as Tim said, they didn't say how many times they'd been shot. Well, that's my question. How many rounds does a thirty odd six hold? Well, it's, it's a hunting rifle. It's funny. I did some research on the thirty odd six. I don't know. If I can tell you how many it does. It is a cartridge type. Okay. And it does eject cartridges. And I know they've said that <coughs> there is some forensic evidence related to uh, either bullets or cartridges, and it appears they may have DNA. In this example, yep, um, but they haven't said exactly how they acquired it, nor do I think they need to. And another criticism I'll I'll make, and again, I'm pulling for law enforcement success, and obviously I, I'd love to see this case be resolved. 
But as near as I can tell, then there's a, a multi-year gap, seven years, until the next press conference. And now we're at the 10-year mark. Mm-hmm. So in August 2019, they announced a renewed press to find the killer of Heidi Childs and David Metzler. Um, I totally support this. I'm just, if they thought they had something in 2012, why wouldn't they keep up a certain degree of momentum? Let's just say a few months or a year later, why not hold another press conference with an update? Because yeah. in in my experience, if you don't keep a case out in front of the public, people forget. And remember, um, Blacksburg is a college town with 33,000 students, and the undergrads rotate 25% mm. or so every single year. So if you're asking the, the student population, the faculty, the professors... And by the way, they represent 33,000 of the 46,000 people that live in Blacksburg. So it's overwhelmingly a college town. Wouldn't you want to keep that case out in front of that public so that they could keep their eyes and ears open? This is the part that I'm, I'm baffled by. Yeah, I agree. I I, th- I think they probably did the conference to try to stir stuff up again, the recent one, because it doesn't seem like they have much. It does seem like uh, some of the ex-investigators consider it to be uh, a random act of violence, which I would have to imagine that's the hardest kind of solve. Well, what, yeah. I mean, how random... I just found out it's eight rounds that are in the 30-odd uh, oh, okay. six. How random is this, though? Like, it was at night, right? Well, Early evening. It, were they not pulled over, too? That, no. So they were already No, they there. don't think so. They think they were parked in, in a parking area. There is something striking. There is a an completely unsupervised uh, shooting range on that on that same road. That's interesting. And unsupervised? Yeah. In other words, I, I you know, it's been a long time since I went target shooting, but um, the places I've been target shooting, there's al- there's always someone there who supervises. Oftentimes yeah. they're, you know, pretty experienced with um, with weaponry and they often give lessons or and they certainly supervise to make certain everybody's got their Weapons pointed downrange, and you know everybody is following all the appropriate safety safety precautions. Right? Yeah, this is not that. Apparently, this, this is, is an outdoor com- range, an outdoor has... range, completely unsupervised, but used very commonly by hunters and other folks that go out and do target practice. That is rather striking. As far as they can tell, they were parked there at the at the parking lot at the picnic area. And they were planning, you know, an evening, playing guitars, singing. They're both accomplished singers. And supposedly she had told her parents that she was going to share some exciting news and this was supposed to be a special date. We think it was the the discussion about the pre-med um, a change of major. They were shot at close range, though, right? Yeah, they, they don't get terribly specific, although the, the investigators did say the scene was pretty horrific. So it sounds like they were probably shot at pretty close range. Uh, right, because when you said the unsupervised shooting range, it makes you think maybe it was a, a stray bullet or something that caught them. No, they don't think so. They, okay. they think that, it, that one possibility might be that someone coming from that shooting range you know, made a decision to, to kill them or perhaps... Um, they came upon something that they, they shouldn't have, you know, drug deal, something like that, that didn't necessarily have anything to do with them, but wrong place, wrong time. And what's the purpose of taking the purse then? I'm not sure. Yeah. You know, and, and 
why not tell us all that back in, in 2009? I followed this case since the beginning. Yeah. Um, and there's a, another thing that's worth noting. Heidi Childs is the daughter of Don Childs, who is a now retired Virginia State Police helicopter pilot. Oh, so he's okay. a member of the law enforcement community. And obviously, uh, you know, he and his family were devastated by this loss, um, as were the Metzler family. If anything, I'm glad to see them redouble their efforts, but I was very surprised. It didn't seem like this case got as much time, attention, and resources as I thought it might have, particularly with Heidi being the daughter of a longtime state police pilot. So I'm sorry to keep harping on this uh, shooting range. Is it that, and maybe you don't know, maybe they haven't released anything uh, saying one way or another, but is, even though it's an open range, do you have to be a member of some group to to shoot there? Like some shooting not club sure, or, but or get, like a VFW or something? Not sure, but given the fact that uh, there's nobody there to check you in or check you out, yeah, um, I, mean, just, I think there probably wouldn't be anybody that would stop you if you went out there and decided to shoot some targets or whatever. Right, but wouldn't you have to know where this place is? Oh, I think so. I, a- so absolutely. So now you're now you've narrowed it down to somebody who probably lives in the area. Yeah, who was probably going to the range or got interrupted before they got to the range is my guess. I uh, mean, it's just such a sense. wild coincidence to have a open shooting range and then the type of weapon that was used in this is the type of weapon that uh, is typically used for hunting and, and, and sort of sharpshooting and uh, even like uh, I'm just doing a real brief uh, look on this weapon like it was used for sniper rifling. Like, yeah, yeah, it's it's a weapon that actually could be shot from hundreds of yards yeah. away with a with an accomplished right. So um, isn't it marksman. just too wild of a coincidence that you have this type of weapon so close to a shooting range? I but mean, well, but it, it can't be accidental. Like yeah, uh, yeah, it can't be an accidental murder. Yeah. Well, and, no, no, I'm know, not saying accidental. Yeah, yeah. I'm saying somebody was there going to shoot or had just come from there. I, I think that that sounds accurate yeah. to me. No, let's keep in mind. Blacksburg, Virginia. We are talking about Western Virginia. This is a very rural area. A lot of hunters, a lot of folks that would probably carry uh, weapons in their pickup truck, um, kind of as a as a matter of of course. Um, so I don't think it would be uncommon for folks to have rifles there. At the most recent uh, press conference. Um, I was also struck by something else, which is there's been a lot of fundraising, and the FBI added another $22,000 onto an already established total. So they've actually increased the amount of the reward now to $100,000, which is a lot of money. Just by comparison, the Colonial Parkway murders uh, has a $20,000 reward, and actually one of our family members had offered to increase the reward to $100,000. This is 10 years ago now. And uh, the FBI declined the offer. Um, But interestingly, the FBI regarding the Heidi Child's David Metzler murder in August 2019 increased the reward to $100,000. So $100,000 is a lot of money in my world, and $100,000, I think, is, is a lot of money in Blacksburg, Virginia. I think what they're hoping to do is shake loose someone a decade later, that might have information about uh, who was involved in the murder of Heidi Childs and David Metzler. Were they religious? They were very religious. They were heavily involved in their church, um, and both sang in the in the church and praise 
choir, and apparently were both very accomplished uh, musicians um, from the Lynchburg area. Man, what a tragedy. Was there anything else in that area that you've looked into that was similar? Was there any uh, incidents of um, police impersonations or any other attempted assaults? Well, we're going to be getting into that in the, in the coming weeks. We're actually going to be taking a look at at this case and other cases. And actually, in our second episode, Kristen has done some research on a very sad pattern that we're seeing, which is how many times the Virginia Tech community has been touched by this level of violence. Many people may remember the Virginia Tech shooting, which happened a couple of years before the Childs Metzler murder. That's where a student uh, with with a high-powered weapon killed a number of of students and professors um, uh, at the school. And then for a community of this size, only 46,000 people, the Blacksburg, Virginia area has been touched by violent crime, extreme violent crime, a number of times. And we get into that in our second episode of Mind Over Murder. It's actually very interesting and tragic. We're not trying to draw any conclusions from this, but it's amazing how a wonderful, beautiful community in the western part of Virginia could be touched by violence this many times. Yeah, do you think it's something psychological, like violence begets violence? The more you see it, the more you uh, participate in it? I'm not sure. The One of the things that we both believe, Kristen Dilley and I both believe, is that institutional interests seem to have superseded uh, the public's right to know. In other words, respectfully, we think that the town of Blacksburg and the institution of Virginia Tech have made a significant effort to downplay the the level of violence that has occurred, which saddens me a bit because I think the public, A, has a right to know, and B, should be aware of this just for their own safety. Now, obviously... Um, when the Virginia Tech shooting took place, I think that's 2007 off the top of my head, um, you know, that was a national story. And for a lot of people, that might have been the first time they'd ever even heard of Virginia Tech. Um, it, it's a very fine institution, very, you know, very challenging academic environment, and it has a very strong sports tradition. But I don't think most people around the country, all 300 plus million of us, had necessarily heard of Virginia Tech, maybe even not until that shooting unless you're from the region. Here's a crazy coincidence. The perpetrator of the Virginia Tech shooting, I can't pronounce the first name, Chu Cho is the last name, uh, was a, uh, a shot at that public firing range. It's an interesting coincidence. That was used by the Virginia Tech shooter and also by Ross Truitt Ashley, who in 2011 shot and killed tech police officer Derek Cruz. Right. We actually do get into this. In other words, there is an odd intersection of crime and people practicing at that unsupervised shooting range who then went on to commit these really heinous uh, murders. I got that information from the Roanoke Times, by the way. Mike, right. Mike right. Uh, Gangloff. Maybe they should uh, start to supervise that uh, shooting range. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> just saying. Yeah, maybe, it's, maybe, maybe. Good literally idea. breeding uh, <laughs> mass murderers. Well, it is very strange, and as I said, the it's been a lot, lot of years since I shot at a 
at a firing range. I've never been to an unsupervised shooting range. There was I, I always even, someone there. I didn't even think there was a such such thing. That sounds so illogical to me. Yeah. And, you know, look, when I, back when I was shooting, it was as a Boy Scout. And obviously, you know, we were kids and probably needed some supervision, most, more from a safety perspective. Yeah. But I think an unsupervised shooting range sounds like a really bad idea. There, there is a very, very strange cross uh, connection here with a lot of violent crimes in that area. I, yeah. I cannot wait to hear what you guys yeah. uh, do on that. It's and very odd. In coming weeks, thank you, in coming weeks, we're going to take a look at other cases. We're not intending for mind over murder to be restricted to Virginia cases, but it's, we start there because of the Colonial Parkway murders. We're going to try to lay some foundational work with other unsolved and some solved cases in Virginia. Um, we're going to be taking a look at the Donna Hall Mike Margaret murder, which is a 1984 homicide of a, a couple um, that many people have proposed could be related to the Colonial Parkway murders, which start two years later. I actually don't think they're related, but we've talked to a lot of family members and supporters of Donna Hall and Mike Margaret, and they are going to be really helping us plug into that case. There's a fascinating backstory on on that case, and I think that is actually a solvable case in Virginia that I'd love to be involved in helping move that forward. Well, this is a tragic case, and you're doing good work with it, and cannot wait for uh, yeah. Mind Over Murder to make its debut. So go subscribe to Mind Over Murder wherever you listen to podcasts, and there are links in the show notes. Bill Thomas, thank you very much for coming back to the Crawl Space Studios Come back again tomorrow. Well, never leave. Thank you. Well, I, I we hadn't decided whether our word of the day was capacious because it is amazing to be back here in the crawl space uh, studio. I was really admiring your curtains, oh, and thank you. I just I thought uh, these are among the most soundproof, striking soundproof curtains I think I've ever seen. And uh, perhaps someday we could hear the story about where you purchase these curtains because. I'm jealous. I think we need curtains like this for Mind Over Murder.